Uh, welcome to our podcast series called You, Me and the Economy. And today we have with us uh, Dr. Neeti Rao to discuss about a very important topic. As we all know, India is transitioning from coal to renewable energy. What does this mean to a large section of uh, the workers, the coal workers who are employed in, you know, from the digging to the transport to the processing and those who work in the thermal power plants? While coal forms an important energy resource in the country, all these processes of mining, transport, and later on, like crushing and milling, causes a huge amount of dust, which impacts uh, the health of the coal workers. It's a major health hazard. 4th of May was observed as the Coal Miners Day. And in this regard, our podcast for this month is dedicated to the coal miners of the country and to understand the many challenges, health challenges in particular, access to health to the various diseases that uh, they go through is very crucial as we transit to cleaner forms of energy. So today we have with us, like I said, Dr. Neeti Rao. I am Bhargavi Rao from the Center for Financial Accountability in conversation with her. Uh, we look forward to understanding a lot more about this topic from her. And uh, to start off, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Neeti, for joining us for this very important podcast. And to begin with, I think it'll be great if you can walk us through your journey in public health. I was just going through your uh, CV and it is such an accomplished one and I didn't know where to start introducing you. So I thought I would request you to walk us through the fantastic journey that you have had. Thank you so much uh, to you, Bhargavi, and also to the to CFA for having me on this podcast. Um, as you said, uh, the 4th of May, uh, we uh, noted the Coal Miners Day uh, and as you know, India is one of the largest producers as well as consumers of coal. Uh, it's time that we did, uh, you know, talk a little bit more and really understood where this coal, which really powers everything that uh, we operate, uh, especially in our digital lives today, uh, including this podcast, by the way, comes from and who are the people who are uh, actually getting this energy to us. Uh, mm -hmm. And particularly the health uh, of these workers, which is, uh, uh, you know, of course, one of the core issues, but also to think about health uh, a little bit more broadly, uh, which is what I've been doing uh, in my background and in my work as a health systems researcher, mm -hmm. uh, putting uh, not just, you know, health in terms of diseases and medicines and doctors and nurses, but to really think uh, a little bit beyond that in terms of what are the social determinants of health? Mm -hmm. uh, and that, of course, includes the occupational aspect of it, uh, the socioeconomical uh, economic aspects of it. Mm -hmm. And in my own work, uh, my focus has very much been in looking at the policy uh, and the governance of health systems. Mm -hmm. And again, uh, going beyond, in many cases, uh, you know, beyond the health ministry or the health sector, uh, mm -hmm. to in fact how all of these different uh, ministries and uh, governments and their, uh, you know, the stakeholders associated with each of these sectors also have a role to play 
in mm-hmm. determining uh, public health and the health of our people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and increasingly, of course, uh, you know, environmental health is an, is an area of interest, uh, given that climate change is among the biggest, uh, you know, problems that we face today globally. It's, uh, I would rank it as, you know, the number one priority, in fact, for many of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that context, again, coming back to coal uh, workers and the work that your organization has been doing and also this conversation, hopefully we can think in terms of how all of these different aspects, uh, you know, the uh, occupational aspect, the economic aspects, uh, as well as health that in fact all interconnected. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and as I said, that has uh, very much been a thread that's running through all of my work. Uh, and particularly looking at it from a systemic and a governance perspective. Oh, that sounds uh, fantastic that you have such a, uh, you know, interdisciplinary, intersectional, um, you know, experience um, focusing on um, the health of uh, coal workers and this sector, like you mentioned, in the context of climate change and what we are seeing today in all our cities. You know, Bangalore has got flooded so much that many parts of Bangalore don't have electricity uh, as we speak, because I was talking to a friend and, you know, many parts of the city have long power uh, shutdowns today. Um, it, it'll, I was also wondering, it'll be good for our um, audience to understand how you moved from doing a undergrad biology to you know you've come a long way and today you're in the environmental health and public health um, sector so it'll be good to understand your academic journey as well a little bit sure Bhargavi I think uh, it's sort of a testament to how we have evolved uh, within the, you know, how the health system and the health sector in India, the public health sector has evolved, particularly in countries like India. So as you said, uh, my training is as a basic biologist. Mm-hmm. Uh, my PhD was actually uh, doing genetics and molecular biology using uh, fruit flies uh, that I was dissecting, <laughs> you know, the brains and looking under the microscope. Uh, but of course, having grown up in India, uh, you would realize that a lot of the work that happens in labs and all of the technical scientific accomplishments, and of course, you know, we've lived through the pandemic and we, uh, and it's become very, very apparent, um, you know, that the research that happened in labs, how that immediately became diagnostics and then uh, vaccines and now drugs for COVID. Uh, but the bigger challenge continues to be how do you get these drugs, these diagnostics, these vaccines to the people and ensure that everybody is vaccinated? You know, everybody has access to the health services that are needed down to the last mile and down to, you know, in every country and all of each of the uh, people, each of the communities in each of these countries. And this is particularly something that's important for those of us, uh, you know, who are in uh, countries lower income uh, uh, communities and lower income countries like India, but also, of course, large parts of the world um, where these challenges are very, very important. And that was very much what guided me um, towards looking at, you know, more, as I said, policy uh, and governance related questions. I was lucky to find the Institute of Public Health Bangalore, 
uh, as a place to sort of hone my uh, skills and also learn on the job, uh, as it were, with uh, some excellent colleagues. Uh, and over time now, I have worked with a range of different uh, employers, uh, also as a health consultant, uh, including uh, now where, where I work with the World Health Organization's uh, headquarters. Uh, and the, one of the main areas of focus as part of even this work has been how social participation and community engagement is a central aspect of health systems governance. Well, that is so interesting and so inspiring, you know, so probably we could just start off to understand what kind of, uh, what are the major health threats for coal miners, uh, you know, given that there are different kinds of diseases and the intensities uh, based on the exposure from the place where coal is mined to uh, the place where it is burned for thermal power and much later as fly ash, if we can see the gamut of uh, health threats and also from all the lifting of all the heavy weights and all that, that uh, the coal miners are subjected to, it will be good to understand the basic, you know, the major health challenges. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. As we would, you know, even intuitively imagine, uh, because of all of the, uh, you know, mine dust, uh, as well as, you know, fly ash, of course, respiratory illnesses are a large chunk. And in fact, uh, there have been studies that have shown nearly half of all of the mine workers have had uh, respiratory illnesses. And these can include, you know, the relatively famous black lung, uh, which is actually pneumoconiosis, as well as silicosis, which are very commonly found in uh, actually mines across where there is very fine particulate. And it's very well known that the inhalation of these fine coal mine dust has uh, led to, uh, you know, these kind of silicosis and uh, mixed dust pneumoconiosis. There's also additional sort of lung illnesses, uh, including the formation of fibro fibroids within the lungs, mm -hmm. and of course cancer, uh, and also uh, you know COPD, and mm -hmm. uh, so chronic obstructive pulmonary diseases, which is among the biggest uh, diseases that we have in India, unfortunately, given that we are so polluted. But uh, we've repeatedly seen in study after study that in fact coal workers are at a higher risk and have higher uh, morbidity as well as mortality associated with these, uh, these conditions, these respiratory illnesses. They're also actually much more at risk for uh, tuberculosis, which is again one of the biggest infectious diseases that we continue to face in India. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, India accounts for over 50% of the uh, uh, you know, world's TB burden. Um, and as such, there's been a lot of policy attention to it as well. Uh, for example, the National Tobacco, sorry, the Tuberculosis Elimination Program, the NTEP, mm -hmm. recognizes coal mine workers as a, uh, you know, as a particularly vulnerable group. And as part of its multi-sectoral action plan for TB, uh, has uh, plans and uh, actions dedicated to the outreach uh, among coal mine workers. And of course, it does it. Uh, by working closely with the Ministry of Coal and also the state governments. In addition uh, to the respiratory illnesses, there are also a range of uh, musculoskeletal problems that are very commonly found among the workers. And about a 
third of uh, mine workers at any given point will typically complain of, you know, chronic aches and pains uh, just from lifting of the coal, uh, as you said, uh, including backache and fractures and joint pain, uh, neck pain. These are all commonly reported, uh, you know, illnesses. Uh, a third area, which is again very uh, important and particularly relevant for uh, you know underground coal mine workers, is problems related to vision. Uh, in fact, as I said, in underground mine workers, it's among the top reported uh, illnesses. Uh, and I, of course, there are also hearing issues. And again, you can imagine there are you know dying, uh, uh, explosives going on in, in mines in order to be able to uh, you know get uh, access to uh, to the uh, to the mining areas. There are also a lot of machinery that's being operated, uh, and, and again, hearing loss associated with that is a common complaint. Um, that, uh, we've also found, uh, you know, allergies, uh, dermatitis, and skin conditions that have been associated with just exposure to these, uh, to coal itself, but also to several other chemicals that end up uh, as part of the processing of you know, the cycle of getting coal from the mines uh, to the plants. Uh, and uh, also, interestingly, there's been a higher incidence reported of non-communicable diseases like diabetes, like cardiovascular diseases. And uh, although we don't understand entirely what the physiology is, uh, it's been found that mine workers are among the have a higher, uh, you know, prevalence of uh, non-communicable diseases also compared to the general population. And this could be, you know, partly to do with uh, the, the increased consumption of tobacco and alcohol that, uh, that is prevalent in these populations. And it's also potentially a result of sort of malnutrition and poor quality of water and so on, which we can talk about later. Uh, 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 the one thing I would like to say is given how tough the conditions of work for you know coal mine workers are, um, and, and of course I'm talking about mine workers, but it, it's in fact true for you know even those who are uh, maybe don't work directly with the mine uh, but are sort of dependent or live in the area, uh, and and similarly also for the thermal power plants, that the the quality of life is not very high, mm -hmm. and. Uh, uh, there isn't a, 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 you know, there are also associated mental health uh, illnesses and, as I mentioned, increased consumption of alcohol, uh, which is reported. And this, unfortunately, the statistics for each of these are not consistently reported um, and, and they are not also disaggregated or classified as those that are found in, uh, you know, mine workers or, you know, in the supportive economy of it. So we don't often have exact numbers. And unfortunately, this hinders in the degree of priority that's given to these uh, to, to this, these communities that are dependent on, on coal mines and power plants. Um, I mean, whatever you just shared is like, you know, I can imagine uh, the large burden of disease on uh, you know, this particular uh, community um, and all the associated uh, communities working directly and indirectly. 
given that there is this such a big burden of disease, I know there are rules of, uh, you know, uh, particularly the dust uh, management rules for underground and above ground and in open cast mines and all that. But despite uh, we know that you know the rules uh, can be broken and uh, very less little monitoring and regulation happens. Um, in my own visits to some of the coal mining regions, uh, such as Asansol, I have found that nobody ever wears a mask or any protective gear. Um, so what would be your thoughts on that? Yeah, actually, I mean, of course, protective equipment, but I also wanted to say that in terms of the government itself and the air quality standards, and we've just, you know, talked about respiratory illnesses, mm -hmm. and you would think that there would be increasing attention uh, given to this, uh, you know, urgent problem of controlling this air pollution and improving air quality standards. Uh, and in fact, in 2015, the government of India did issue stronger norms uh, and of course, there was pushback uh, from the industry, including uh, NTPC, for example, who uh, said, you know, that these were too stringent and that they needed to be brought down, uh, that they needed to be relaxed. And in October of 2020, the government of India did dilute uh, its air pollution norms and brought it down by 50%. Uh, and now the emissions norm for nitrous oxide, for example, is uh, 450 mg compared to you know, the 300 uh, milli milligram that they had set in 2015. So despite, and, and the deadline for actually meeting the standard is 2022. So it sort of gives you a sense of urgency, even mm -hmm. within the setting of standards, uh, I mean, let alone the implementation and the actual following of these standards, but even in the regulation and the standard setting itself, I think there's been a great degree of laxity. And again, that's why I think it's important to have more of these sorts of discussions where the problem can be highlighted more. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so even the standards itself are very, very lax. They are, uh, and, and even those standards are not being met. And in fact, even the CAG report that came out in 2019 highlighted that even the government, uh, you know, the Coal India, mm -hmm. which is the largest coal producer uh, anywhere in the world, really, uh, you know, the single company that produces uh, coal, my uh, coal is, uh, has not met nearly 50% of its, of its mines do not have yet, uh, you know, followed the standards that it has already that have already been set. They are not even measuring ambient air quality uh, in all of these, all of the mines that they're operating. And even where they are, they are not actually meeting the prescribed standards, uh, you know, that, that they are supposed to meet already. So, mm -hmm. so this issue that you mentioned about, you know, the fact that nobody wears masks, but also that, uh, you know, the, um, the air, ambient air quality standards that mines are supposed to meet aren't being met. The mm -hmm. precautionary measures in terms of setting up uh, you know, monitoring stations, but also management. Uh, and there are now, you know, interesting new technologies uh, mm -hmm. that are available, but even those technologies uh, are not actually being employed in the way that they ought to be uh, mm -hmm. to manage the, you know, the manage the pollution, uh, the pollution, the pollutants that are inevitably going to be produced. 
you know the combustion and burners and catalytic reduction and all of these methods that are you know known to reduce the pollution uh, air quality pollution are not actually being invested in uh, and you know interestingly the health of uh, coal mine workers is supposed to be the responsibility of the government under its own uh, act the coal mines special provisions act that was uh, that came up in the 50s uh, and state governments also have a duty uh, for the uh, you know as for the employees that work within their uh, states and despite this regulatory in fact legislative protection that uh, coal mine workers have and and uh, uh, you know including to the all of the employees of these various uh, you know companies large companies in many cases there has not been a uh, setting of appropriate standards that actually does take care of the health of the, their workers and b appropriate implementation of it uh and and regulation unfortunately has been poor right from the get go and continues to be poor in 2022 mhm yeah it, it this is really uh, sad and unfortunate uh, while we see dilution of environmental uh, laws you know particularly with respect to um, clearances and lowering of standards and uh, last uh, year two years back actually we saw further dilution of the eia itself so with all this happening it it must be really miserable to be working in this sector and i'm just thinking you also mentioned a malnutrition to have a undernourished body and to be able to work here i'm just curious what would be the symptoms like is it headache cough fever what what would be the symptoms like for some of the diseases that you mentioned and uh, how does a uh, lack of nutrition uh, lead to weakening the body further of these uh, coal miners because day after day uh, and we also know that many of them are you know under the informal sector so you know it it eventually leads to pay cut so what does all of this mean from having a symptom to not being able to work to be able to take a leave or being absent from work and pay cut yeah so actually uh, uh, your question is a very interesting sort of uh, you know collusion of economic health system uh, socio cultural factors that actually work in all against unfortunately the the mine workers mm-hmm. and uh, so we have to realize that in fact a lot of these communities that are or these people who are now and have ended up dependent on the mines used to grow their own food they were relatively small communities either you know tribal communities or even when they were not tribal you know they were typically agriculturalists and a lot of this land then was taken up initially by you know government companies such as coal india limited they would the government would these companies in fact would pay compensation both monetary compensation but also an assured job and mm-hmm. as a farmer in india who has to face a very high degree of uncertainty in fact being a farmer is one of the most risky professions uh, mm-hmm. in the country uh, you know the the lure of a regular income uh, mm-hmm. assured income 
uh, was a very you know very attractive one which in fact uh, it prompted many of them to go go there and for the people who were left behind who were still continuing to uh, you know practice their agriculture the pollution and the contamination of water of soil of air uh, through the operation of these mines mm-hmm. uh, and meant that you know the agricultural yields were also much lower mm-hmm. uh, which meant that as a community they became more and more dependent on uh, for water on piped water wherever that was available or rather made available by by either the state government infrastructure or by the companies in many cases mm-hmm. and b also for their uh, you know the food they would now from growing their own food they were now going to the markets just like all of us city dwellers mm-hmm. um, and having to buy this food uh, the thing to remember also is that most of these coal mines are actually in states which have relatively poor state capacity right state infrastructure uh, think about madhya pradesh i uh, think about chatisgarh jharkhand these are all relatively you know the poorer states of india uh, who are uh, not you know the not the more uh, uh, you know ones known for their uh, social services or their infrastructure uh, and and this that meant also that now the minute you are you know dependent on for example pipe water supply you are also dependent then on the state's infrastructure uh and as i was saying in the beginning a lot of these coal mines was you know large government companies but over time what has happened is that uh, of course because of market pressures there are more and more private players and there are also many smaller private and also in many cases illegal players who may not have the same kind of obligations and they don't also have the same uh, kind of resources to be able to put in even mm-hmm. the government uh, you know big government behemoths like coal india no longer have the capacity um, or no longer offer uh, you know a regular job so mm-hmm. increasingly these jobs are contractual which means hire and fire uh, which means that you know often these workers get a daily wage mm-hmm. uh, and they are not a very high quality job they don't have associated health insurance they don't have associated uh, you know benefits uh, that you might expect from a formal job and an employer which used to be the case in the beginning but are but uh, are very rare or actually uh, do not come by anymore so uh, the the kind of vulnerability of these people have progressively increased uh and in terms of symptoms so once you become a daily wage worker that means that the minute you for you have a uh, you know even a small illness like let's say uh, you know debilitating backache or neck pain or you know a persistent cough or uh, you know some kind of or difficulty breathing or poor eyesight all of these early symptoms of the kinds of diseases that we dis- uh, discussed early on there is less and less incentive to actually immediately go and uh, visit a health practitioner who may identify this as part of a you know a recurrent as a problem that might become much bigger later so there is a tendency uh, to ignore these you know smaller symptoms so you have a fever for a day or you have a persistent cough it, it you know you continue working with it because if you stop then you know you lose the day's wage or uh, you know your supervisor now knows that okay you are somebody that has that is unable to you know have the same degree of uh, effectiveness or efficiency as another worker might have and you can easily be replaced by a you know healthier maybe younger worker 
Uh, that's mm. a level. So there is a pressure, there is an incentive, disincentive actually uh, to get care early on. Mm. Uh, even when some of these larger uh, minds again ha- can are you know obliged to have a medical professional on site. So they will often even run or support uh, small clinics or dispensaries. Uh, but the incentive to actually go, as well as the time and, uh, and the ability to actually go and visit a healthcare professional and for that to be recorded and followed up in the way that it ought to be. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe in, in many cases, if it does become something that requires, say, a tertiary care intervention, to have a referral linkage with the tertiary care hospital. All of these things is actually dependent, uh, A, on early identification. And as we discussed, there isn't an incentive to do that. And B, on the capacity of the state itself for the health system to have good facilities, good doctors, Mm -hmm. uh, and and, uh, uh, big hospitals, good hospitals, uh, which are often not available. And going back to what you were asking in terms of, you know, protective equipment and so on, uh, our India's mines have been called one of the most dangerous places to work in uh, Mm. repeatedly. So, for example, India's coal mines have, you know, are 24 times more accident prone than Mm. coal mines in Australia, uh, for example. Mm -hmm. So, and, and uh, one also has to realize that these are data that we know from, you know, legal established mines. There are also a lot of illegal mines that are operating in our country, unfortunately. And again, the regulation and the regulatory capacity to be able to find and, you know, shut them have not been very good. Uh, uh, and uh, once again, just like we said, in the beginning, there were, you know, organized large companies, which also had you know, unions, trade unions that operated in these large mines and were able to sort of advocate on behalf of their workers. Mm -hmm. As more and more of these mines become smaller, privatized or subcontracted, often the workers themselves are no longer regular workers. Uh, The unionization has also, of course, gone down dramatically, which means then it is each employee or each worker for himself. Uh, and typically it is himself, you know, it, those are young uh, males. Uh, and, and the kinds of uh, job opportunities that are available, also the quality of the jobs that are available itself have uh, gone down dramatically. And that directly has an impact on their ability to seek healthcare, their ability to pay for it, mm. and their ability to continue to uh, access care in a way that's actually good. And this is, uh, and, and these problems are further magnified for their, you know, for their dependents, for their wives, for their children, uh, who may not even have the, for example, the healthcare worker on site, right? They often then end up going to the local private sector provider. And again, uh, you know, these mines are located in, in the, for the most part among, you know, the poorer, uh, more rural areas of our country where there aren't too many trained uh, doctors available so mm. the, the local doctor often can be can you know may not be fully trained even uh, can be a, a informal provider so the quality of care that is available may not be very high uh, and oftentimes these repeated illnesses and repeated seeking of care from a private sector provider where even if uh, you have to pay let's say 100 rupees uh, mm. for the care that is still uh, recurrent 
uh, and quite a substantial financial burden. That's again, uh, additional disincentive to actually seek care. And this sort of, uh, you know, has this uh, negative spiral uh, mm-hmm. that means that the health of these people is, uh, const- is you know, continues to worsen uh, mm-hmm. and ends up in, in the data that we see in terms of a higher uh, rate of uh, mortality compared to the general population. You covered a lot of ground on, um, you know, uh, not having enough money, no food, being threatened by, you know, being removed from a job and not having access to good health care and ignoring some of the basic uh, symptoms. Uh, so early uh, ruling out early diagnosis and treatment. And you earlier also mentioned about mental health. I, I'm just wondering like you know having such a big burden and its implications at the home front particularly with uh, in the context of women um, I'm sure there's a lot of domestic violence as well and uh, the implications on uh, women in general and their uh, vulnerability to um, further uh, deteriorated um, physical health, mental health, and reproductive health, uh, and uh, even adults and girls uh, who probably may be subject to um, violence and abuse, and uh, you know the kind. If if you can throw some light on that, yeah. So absolutely. So. Uh, as, as we said, that these are again these states are uh, you know among the states that we know have you know worsened infant mortality, maternal mortality rate compared to the you know the national average, for example. So these are the states. So unfortunately, once again, we don't collect these kinds of data in a way that will enable us to you know to associate them uh, with coal mines, for example, in our case. So we have we have data for these states, but we don't offer, you know, even though there are studies that are conducted, they uh, end up being, you know, in one region or one district or one coal mine, and then they aren't followed up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have, you know, data points from different points, uh, from different geographies, uh, and it's very difficult to then, you know, form a collective picture. But what we do know so, for example, you know, Madhya Pradesh, which has uh, many mines, has an infant mortality rate of 46, whereas the national average is 30. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine it's one of the highest, uh, if not the, I think Rajasthan is the only state that has a higher uh, infant mortality rate in, in our country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and similarly, for the maternal mortality, I mean, you mentioned uh, women, the national average is 7.3. Whereas the MMR, the maternal mortality rate for Madhya Pradesh is 15.9. And these numbers have more or less stayed static. So there hasn't, uh, there have been small, you know, improvements, one or two, uh, you know, points. But really, uh, over a period of, you know, several uh, surveys, so nearly a decade, the numbers have more or less remained in the same range. Um, so we're seeing that there hasn't been a substantial improvement. And this is true also, I mean, again, Chhattisgarh, which also has a lot of mines, mm-hmm. has an IMR of 40 uh, and an MMR of 12, which is, again, far higher than the All India numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, similarly for Odisha, you know, in fact, again and again for these. 
Telangana, uh, you know, which is also a state which has several mines, performs slightly better. Uh, but again, that's a state that has, um, you know, has better capacity, as we know. So on, on uh, I mean, if you look at the this coal belt, uh, as it has been called, uh, they consistently have poorer uh, maternal and infant mortality indicators, mm -hmm. uh, which is, which I mean, again, makes intuitive sense in a way. In fact, there was a study in 2019 that said uh, for each gigawatt of mm -hmm. increase in coal-fired capacity for a thermal plant, has a corresponding 14% increase in infant mortality in the districts that are near that plant. Uh, so you can imagine the cost of, you know, burning coal. Uh, mm. And this is only the estimate associated with air pollution. But as mm. we have discussed, there are, you know, uh, many other kinds of environmental uh, uh, damage, including malnutrition, uh, and contamination of water and land, which we don't have very good estimates for. And clearly all of that is contributing to the illness associated with it. In terms of mental health, uh, again, we don't have very good mental health statistics in India. Unfortunately, we are uh, overall across the country, mental health has been very much neglected uh, in this country and the infrastructure is not available. There aren't enough health professionals. But what we do know, is that uh, suicides are very common among coal, mi uh, coal mine workers. And this is actually true across the globe. For example, the US uh, reports an average rate of about 4.4 suicides per 100 miners. And this increases for underground uh, mine workers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, it, it, I mean, it only uh, makes sense that a similar uh, extrapolation would also be applicable to, uh, to India. And in the Indian case, we already know that there are mental health impacts associated with A, the land use change that came from the initial setting up of these mines, right, uh, that we've already talked about. And then this deterioration in the kind of, in the quality of the work, of the, you know, jobs that are associated with the, the coal, coal mines and, and plants and all of the associated, the, you know, the coal economy, so to speak. Uh, and uh, so the, uh, you know, the loss of health insurance, the loss of dependable incomes, um, and even the number of jobs available, mm. one, one must also take into account that there is now an increasing pressure to not invest in coal, you know, globally, which means that a lot of these coal companies have a pressure to show higher, uh, you know, production but not increase their, uh, you know, their uh, input costs. Uh, and again, as more and more of them are private or they're smaller players are subcontracted out, there is an increasing incentive to increase their profit margins, which mm -hmm. means the investments into, you know, looking after their workers, making sure, as we discussed before, that the pollution standards are met. Uh, you know, uh, to making sure that the drinking water that is provided is clean. Even something like, uh, you know, cafeteria, the food that is provided in the cafeteria in these, uh, you know, in the, for their company workers, 
even things like that, the investments in just everyday basic things, mm-hmm. uh, the protective equipment, whether or not, uh, you know, gear, appropriate gear is provided, whether or not latest technology is used, for example, to transport the mines from, you know, inside the mines to uh, whichever location, the kind of explosives that are used and how scientifically managed they are. All mm-hmm. of these are resource intensive, uh, you know, things and they require resources. But once you uh, move away, you know, have these pressures, these market pressures to make sure that you can extract as much coal as possible, given that India's needs are, you know, electricity needs, as you mentioned, is continuously, uh, energy needs are increasing, but there is this pressure to, you know, announce an end date for when we have to close all of our mines or stop our dependency on coal, um, this sort of binary. Uh, that means that the law, the people who end up you know, having suffering the losses are unfortunately the people who are dependent on the mines and that goes for the workers but that also goes for the communities right the, mm-hmm. the their wives their children the older people uh, all of these communities who have now whose lives now center around these these coal mines and right, right. Uh, as you were talking uh, i was also reminded of uh, uh, you know, this is also a belt where uh, child trafficking is uh, is also very high, and uh, many of the girl children uh, land up in um, many of the shelter homes that I have visited. Uh, I have realized that they come from, you know, they have been uh, lured into better jobs or better education, or the common lure has been, "I'll get, I'll make you a film actress," and uh, they've been trafficked. That just, uh, you know, indicates how uh, fragile these uh, areas are, um, starting from um, the place where they work to their families and uh, the life of what uh, the senior citizens have to keep up with and the children living in an area where there is constant uh, coal dust, noise, then poor sanitation, as you mentioned, lack of access to water or even polluted water, and also no nutrition at the household level, no access to health and education, and then the burden of health. So with this background, this is also a community that was once shifted from their dependence on the forest where they led a fairly sustainable life. They were so connected to their ecosystem and that was disturbed and you know they were made to relocate in this new settlement and get adjusted to everything new. And now with the transition that we are talking about, if many of the coal mines are already being abandoned and shut down and uh, closed. So in a scenario like this, uh, these communities and their children, uh, I'm I'm just wondering about what the future holds for them, uh, what kind of plans uh, are uh, being made and what will, um, you know, their future in the context of health, access to education and better life and skills. Uh, is, is, is there anything, and I know you did mention that there are very few studies in India uh, on the coal workers. That's also because of their remote locations, the unsafe conditions. 
um and and it is not easy to uh, conduct surveys and uh, interviews in these kind of places because of the constant uh, climate of fear that exists there um from the companies and uh, the people who own the mines they are all the time observing who's coming and going and who's talking to whom uh this i'm speaking from experience of having visited asansol so in in a situation like this uh where does the future uh what does the future hold for these communities is something you know if you can yeah this is the million dollar question in in some ways because i mean as i said and as you said also there is this uh pressure really to shut down as many mines as possible to reduce dependence but even you know before that in fact we have had you know coal mines that have closed for example i believe some 123 mines coal mines have been closed in india since 2008 mm-hmm. uh, and we know from this past experience that actually there wasn't really any appropriate sort of remediation environmental remediation or even land rehabilitation that was done in these areas let alone you know restoration of the communities uh, rehabilitation of the people so we know that there were you know severe deficiencies in all of that and and india in fact has not even had a, a plan you know a proper uh, guidelines for closing of mines and uh, you know the first version has come out only in, as recently as tw- 2009 mm-hmm. um, so this is clearly an area which requires a great deal of policy attention because one of the things that need to be realized is that it isn't simply that uh, you know these people have moved to a different occupation but in fact as you pointed out there is an uprooting and there's a disruption of a of a culture right of a community and i think uh, and and these and we know already from data from elsewhere and just evidence from elsewhere that the sense of community the ability to rely on each other the sort of community based uh, techniques of adaptation informal ways of adapting informal ways of managing uh risks and uh, vulnerabilities including health risks mm-hmm. all you know substantial sources of uh, resilience for communities uh, and you mentioned dependence on forests and again we know that uh, you know tribal communities do have uh, a, a large or did used to have anyway a large sort of uh, traditional uh, knowledge that put that used to be uh, one of the areas that they did depend for their healthcare help seeking needs among other needs of course and the education and all of this and the continuity of this knowledge transfer uh, is disrupted by these kinds of large scale activities right and and these are things that i don't think we have adequately accounted for nor have we really understood uh, mm-hmm. uh, and as you pointed out these uh, you know these communities are in hard to reach areas the even the development of researcher capacity um the uh, what the you know one encouraging thing that's happening now is that the government of india has uh, now is now working uh, with the world bank mm-hmm. uh, to understand uh, the socio economic impact of mine closure on people as well as their livelihoods and again you know livelihoods is uh, tends to be as always the central focus Mm-hmm. but uh, uh you know but because it's also talking about the socio economic transformation hopefully there will also be the kinds of things that you talked about you know the little girls being 
uh, you know, incentivized to move away uh, with promises of, you know, turning them into actresses or uh, other kinds of lucrative uh, allures, which, you know, so this black market in a way uh, that operates against them. So all of these cultural aspects uh, are still not going to be dealt with, but at least it's a start. Uh, there is a systematic uh, study that's going to start and it's only now been put in place in 2022, earlier this year. Uh, mm-hmm. So we are yet to see you know, what, uh, how well uh, the process will be. And I think there is a big room for a lot of smaller local sort of NGOs and local uh, you know, uh, uh, researchers, local organizations to work very closely and to highlight much more the, the contextual factors. So a large project like this Government of India uh, collaboration with the World Bank can, you know, can, do, can look at all of these areas as sort of one big uh, uh, you know, piece of land, let's say one uh, big project uh, where they look at you know, geospatial data and they also do socioeconomic data and, and they try to do surveys and, and try and figure out a, a, a large scale plan for what they call a socially fair shift that's away from coal uh, in these areas where the mines are going to be shut. And you know, they have included uh, service of local peoples, provision of alternative jobs, provision of basic services, all of those sorts of things. But I think given how diverse our country is and given that these coal mines are actually spread in so many different states, right? And within that also, uh, there is a degree of diversity in the nature of the communities. I think there's a lot of room for uh, local actors to to get in. And again, that is something that hasn't happened enough. Uh, So currently we have an estimate of about 13 to 20 million people who are either directly or indirectly dependent on coal. And this is just the official number. Mm-hmm. Uh, potentially, you know, there are many more who are seasonally associated with it and, you know, other kinds of informal workers, uh, the people from the illegal mines, all of those who are probably not included in this estimate. And we also know that uh, from these areas, there's a lot of economic migration that happens, uh, some of which that you, you mentioned, for example, with the, the women and the girls, but also with the men, you know, as there are fewer and fewer economic opportunities. There's also migration, and these people end up in other states and end up working as seasonal workers. Uh, so uh, the the point is that there hasn't yet been a very systematic plan. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things I think that needs to start this process, apart from this large-scale policy action, is also a systematic sort of uh, a, a participatory process that ought to start. And again, this should be something that the government initiate, but then are uh, led by local actors, I think. So I think it's time given that we are going to undergo, just like other countries elsewhere, and, and admittedly, this is a very, very challenging process, right? Of, uh, uh, you know, making this large transition. It's not going, it's not something that's going to happen overnight. Uh, it may it may not even happen in a decade. It might take even longer than that. But it's very important that the process starts now to enable a gradual and a considered shift. So mm-hmm. as these things happen, we are going to learn more and more about what are the good ways of doing it and what are the not so good ways of doing it, right? So it's right. important that we start as early as possible. 
to have these discussions with uh, the local people, you know, with the people who are directly affected by them. And we should have uh, as expansive a definition of people associated with coal as possible. I mean, not restricted only to the you know the workers in the mines, but really mm-hmm. think of it as a community mm-hmm. transition. Uh, and include the people in these discussions, I think. And this is definitely something that's missing. Uh, It's missing in the larger sort of climate and energy conversations that are happening. I mean, it's very technical. It talks about renewable energy and, uh, you know, what technologies are required and how we can create so many jobs from uh, renewable energy, but not realizing that the people who are actually working in the coal mines aren't the ones who are going to get the jobs, right? So what are you going to do? And it's not going to be a simple, you know, oh, you're no longer doing coal mines. So let's find you an alternative job that we would find, you know, sitting some maybe in the state capital or in Delhi, uh, and and then they will automatically go. So it's not going to be like that. Uh, they have to have a say. And I think we've learned this lesson already from you know, all of the land use change has happened so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so apart from you know, the kind of thing, the, the excellent work that has started through funding from the World Bank in terms of mapping who these people are, where mm-hmm. they are located, what kinds of uh, you know, alternative professions might be available, what kinds of skill sets are there, Mm -hmm. Uh, what is their education level the health level all of those sorts of things you know large-scale surveys need to be complemented by a sort of uh, decentralized but also centrally supported so the resources have to be made available by the government but Mm -hmm. then to be led and operated by you know local actors and and to have a longer term plan for it a plan of you know let's say 10 years uh, I don't think we even have the institutional structures, unfortunately, to be able to do something like that uh, at this point in time. Uh, but uh, which is where local leadership, I think, is, has a large role to play. And, um, and, and more and more of us, both researchers, activists, as well as people who work in the energy sector, right, have to start to highlight this issue more and more, I think. Right. Very true. It, uh, this has been so insightful. And uh, since we are at the close of uh, the time slot, uh, a very big thank you to you for, you know, drawing attention to so many aspects of the health of coal workers. And now, particularly in the context of this transition, how are we going to help them? Uh, what are the possibilities are uh, things that, uh, like you said, researchers, um, civil society, the government and uh, the industry has to come together and dialogue together. And uh, it it also can't be a one size fits all. It probably needs a case by case uh, attention. And more importantly, the coal miners voices have to be heard. I think um, it, it is just uh, being just unfair there because these are people who've been displaced twice in their life now and to uh, resettle and rehabilitate and, uh, you know, pick up uh, the threads of uh, everything and move on is a big challenge. So in that context, I would urge all our listeners to read this article called Salam to the Coal Miners of India that was written earlier this month on the 4th of May, which is available on senfa.org. 
So with that, a very big thank you to you, Neeti. And I look forward to having more conversations with you on this. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Bhargavi. I think I really enjoyed and also learned uh, a lot from you and hope that uh, you, know, you, you as well as your organization continue to highlight these issues. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot.